The Guardian. My name's John Dennis at The Guardian's HQ. In today's podcast, The Guardian's correspondent in Kyrgyzstan finds evidence of an orchestrated massacre of ethnic Uzbeks in Osh. I was sticking to the, 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 the ruins of one house and stumbled across the skeleton of uh, someone lying on the bed. He'd obviously burnt to death. Also today, George Osborne announces the biggest shake-up of city regulations since 1997. If the Governor of the Bank of England lifts an eyebrow, as he used to do in the old days, uh, then the banks have to take notice. This is Michael White at Westminster, where we've had uh, Prime Minister's Question Time, where Harriet Harman decided to focus on trends in unemployment. Mr Speaker, we all agree that the deficit needs to come down. But will he promise that in the budget next week, he won't hit the poorest and he won't throw people out of work? First, our top story. Southern Kyrgyzstan has been gripped by ethnic violence. The Guardian's correspondent, Luke Harding, is in the city of Osh, where Uzbeks have been indiscriminately killed in huge numbers. Well, it's a pretty horrific day in Osh today, uh, piecing together what happened and um, talking to Uzbeks who've been the victims, really, of of what I think we can say now is is essentially ethnic cleansing. Um, the, The Uzbeks here... Um, uh, well, they're a minority in Kyrgyzstan, although uh, they're pretty numerous in, in Osh um, and in other southern parts of um, where I am at the moment. But what, what eyewitnesses say is that last week, beginning last Thursday, that um, Kyrgyz armoured personnel vehicles uh, went into uh, ethnic Uzbek districts, uh, opened fire, shooting randomly at whoever they could find. Um, and, and these personnel carriers were followed by a mob of Kyrgyz teenagers, mainly some with automatic weapons, some with sticks. Um, and, and really, they just uh, killed um, and kind of burned everyone they came across. Uh, behind them, um, I was told today, were um, looters essentially stealing uh, whatever they could. But it's clear, having had a look, that the official death toll uh, from, from these ethnic riots, which is sort of put at about 200 is way too low. People here are talking about 2,000 victims. I mean, obviously, it's impossible to know, John, but it, it, it's traumatic stuff. I, I was thinking through the, the, the ruins of one house and stumbled across the skeleton of uh, someone lying on the bed. He'd obviously burned to death um, in a neighboring house. The um, Uzbeks had removing, been removing bodies of seven small children who'd been incinerated while carrying with their mother in a dark cellar. Um, and um, it's it's been a grim, grim day. What about the plight of Uzbek refugees, Luke, fleeing the area? Well, I also um, took a a trip up to to the Uzbek border, which is only about five kilometres away from Osh, across a sort of rather rather amazing landscape of uh, kind of sprawling mountains and um, uh, fields of maize and, and poplar trees, and then basically we had to change cars. At the moment, it's just impossible to uh, to, to go in a Kyrgyz vehicle into an Uzbek area or vice versa. I mean, the mood here is still very twitchy and uh, you know quite traumatised. Um, but we, we took a sort of dirt road um, up, up to the border. Um, the border is now closed, and actually the border is in fact nothing more than a kind of scruffy barbed wire with a couple of. Um, Uzbek soldiers um, standing guard, but there are still some refugees on this side of the border, but 
And the vast majority have already crossed into Uzbekistan, certainly as many as 40 or 50,000, possibly more. Um, but some of, some of the people I talked to said that, I talked to one surgeon who said that the, the victims had been shot in the face and the head quite deliberately. Um, and, and generally the impression I get was that this wasn't sort of spontaneous inter-ethnic violence, but this was a kind of premeditated uh, and, and rather, rather well-planned um, uh, massacre. Um, you know, people have speculated about the reasons, but I don't think it was coincidence that this happened when it did. What about the response, Luke, of the international community? Well, so far, John, I haven't seen any response. Uh, I arrived at Osh Airport um, two days ago, and, and uh, the airport is on a very dangerous road. It's on a kind of sniper's alley and, and basically cowed in the back of a truck into town. That, that's the main route for, demand, for, for um, uh, delivering aid from the airport. And, and certainly the Uzbeks I spoke to said that, that no aid had really reached them at all um, because Kyrgyz drivers were afraid to go there. Um, and um, I, I simply didn't see any aid. Um, in the centre of town, in the Kyrgyz areas, there is now bread in the shops. You know, there's, there, there's sort of signs that normal life is, is returning in some form. But the Uzbek areas, many of the houses, most of the houses have been destroyed. In, in some of the other areas where, where the Uzbeks have built sort of homemade barricades by felling maple trees and, and shoving burned cars in the road, people are on the streets. But, they, they told me that they're hungry, that they're desperate, and, and, and really they feel their plight has been absolutely ignored. And are aid agencies able to get aid through to, to those who need it? Well, in theory, yes, but the, the problem is that the, the, the machinations of this conflict mean that there's, there's, no, there's no trust, basically, between these kind of two communities that, that live side by side. I, 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 it's astonishing, really, because Osh is basically predominantly Uzbek town, but the, the centre and all the administrative buildings are, are, are Kyrgyz, and, and, and now it's, it's turned into a kind of Beirut, where, where you know, you can drive left and you can't drive right. Now, now as a sort of foreigner, it's okay, we can kind of cross the lines, but, but crossing the lines is very hazardous. Um, people here are absolutely soups. There are talks of snipers in, in the mountains, and, and there's a curfew. Certainly in the evening, there is, there is some gunfire, but... but um, uh, and uh, what sounds like artillery, but I think it's just an armoured personnel car- carrier sort of firing. Um, but, but so far, the international effort, if there is one, I haven't seen it. Luke Harding in Osh. In the Commons today, George Osborne unveiled sweeping changes to city regulation. The coalition agreement commits us to reform the regulatory system for financial services in order to avoid a repeat of the financial crisis. And that is precisely what we will do. First, on the structure of regulation. Our plan is to hand over to the Bank of England the responsibility for macroprudential supervision that should never have been taken away from it. The tools for macroprudential supervision are the subject of ongoing international discussions. We are playing a full part in that process at a European and G20 level, along with the Governor of the Bank and the Chairman of the FSA. It is already clear that the tools will include capital requirements that work against the cycle rather than with it. The coalition government is also committed to handing to the Bank of England responsibility for the oversight of micro-prudential regulation. 
It is clear that the central bank needs to have a deeper understanding of what is going on in individual firms. It's the end of Labour's tripartite system of regulation and responsibility for overseeing the behaviour of financial institutions will now pass from the Financial Services Authority to the Bank of England. The Guardian's financial editor, Niels Prattley, says the Bank of England governor, Mervyn King, is now too big to fail. Well, what he will argue is that... um the, the, the Bank of England uh, are the guys who can actually uh, sort of instill some proper fear into uh, the banks that uh, if the governor of the Bank of England lifts an eyebrow, as he used to do in the old days, uh, then the banks have to take notice. Uh, I think he'll also argue that um, giving more information to the Bank of England, i.e. giving it more uh, access and direct access to the uh, FSAs, financial services authorities, um, day-to-day supervision of banks, will improve the judgment, uh, the, you know, the decision-making of, of the bank. That's what Osborne argues, but, uh, I mean, in, in practice, will that actually work? Well, I, 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 I think it's, it, it, is, it is worth giving it a go. I think, broadly speaking, um, you know, you know a, a change of structure is a good thing. I mean, the, the, the bit where uh, one starts to worry is that, you know, the Bank of England is now doing two jobs. It's doing... Uh, it's got the mon- independent uh, control of monetary policy, setting interest rates, and it's now um, uh, looking after uh, supervising the banks at the, at the top level. It's not too hard to imagine circumstances in which those two objectives could come into conflict. Um, for example, you know, would uh, the freedom uh, would free uh, decision making on interest rates be impeded if the bank knew that a rate a rise in interest rates might cause trouble for one particular institution? You know, you could you can imagine circumstances in the, you know in which there would be conflict there, um, and I think you also have to say that an awful lot of uh, power and trust is being invested in in one man, Mervyn King, in this case, governor of the Bank of England at the time. Um, you know, he, he's a jolly good chap and all that, but he is, as some would say, he, he's an academic, and some would say that um, the best people to uh, control and assess risks at the top of banks is a banker. Isn't wasn't part of the problem in the recent crash not so much the machinery of regulation but the culture the mindset that allowed the banks to get away with it? Yeah, I think that's right. And I and I yeah, at the end of the day, you have to uh, you got to you got to make the observation that whatever structure you have, you are dependent upon those in authority having the right mindset and doing the right things at the right time, and that maybe t- too much time and attention has been. Uh, concentrated on the structure, not enough on, on the mindset of the in, in, individuals. Clearly, the mindset in the, uh, back in the in the uh, what appeared the good old days, what now appears the bad old days, was that too many people were signed up to light touch regulation, and that was the culture of the hour. George Osborne, uh, it's his budget next week. And um, what will he have to do now to show that he's serious about reforming the city? Well, I think the the one thing uh, we, we're speaking just before the uh, the Chancellor makes his mansion house speech. I think. I mean, one way to measure the uh, the, the, the chancellor's, chancellor's impact on the city is, is how high he sets his proposed bank levy, assuming that he does go ahead with it. I mean, the, the early guesses at how much he wants to raise range from uh, one billion a year to five billion. That's an awfully uh, wide range. Clearly, the banks would cheer at the lower end and uh, would boo at the upper end. Um, but I think it's sort of if he wants to make the argument that in the um, in the pursuit of fairness uh, and uh, in a time of austerity that um, the banks have got to pay. Clearly, you know, people are going to look at what the number actually is. Nils Prattley.
Still to come in Guardian Daily with me, John Dennis, South Africa marks a milestone in the struggle against apartheid. My name is Zuelinzi Masizani. So I was more than involved. I was the national organiser of the high school student movement, SASN. First, more from Westminster. This is Michael White at Westminster, where we've just come out of Prime Minister's Question Time. Uh, Harriet Harman uh, went on the offensive over unemployment trends and, of course, what the budget might do to those trends next Tuesday, the 22nd. Though this morning, Mr Speaker, saw the unemployment claimant count fall, unemployment is still too high. Behind these <laughs> figures are real people and real concerns. Can... Promise, can he promise that none of the policies that he will put in his budget next week will put more people out of work? Honourable, honourable members should remember why we've had record unemployment in this country because of the record of failure we inherited. If he, if he, if he thought our spending plans were so bad, why did he back them right up till the end of 2008, praising them, Mr Speaker, as tough? One minute he's praising them, then he's causing them, calling them reckless. It's not so much magic numbers, it's a magic roundabout that he's been on. Well, Mr Speaker, the, the figures were wrong and the jokes weren't much good either. Never mind the magic roundabout, what we're all enjoying on this side of the House is the Labour leadership election, although it is, by day, beginning to look more like a Star Trek convention. Well, as you would expect at this stage in the Parliament, there's still a pretty fundamental divide between the uh, main parties about what the new government's going to do and the legacy of the old government uh, bequeathed them. And uh, Harman and Cameron had a, a dispute about what the unemployment figures uh, really meant. It's interesting to me that Labour MPs are already beginning to say, what about my uh, regional grants which were promised by uh, Peter Mandelson? Uh, David Cameron says, well, a lot of them were promised the marginal seats and we're going through them all. And uh, interestingly, at the same time, Cameron's saying, well, I understand your point of view. We said it to the new MP for Barrow. I understand how important acute class submarines are to that remote constituency. That's where they're built. And being quite sensitive on several points, but also quite critical where he felt able. Uh, joining me here in the Guardian's office for an overview of PMQs is the Guardian's irrepressible Simon Hoggart. Bit of restlessness among Tory right-wingers at Prime Minister's Question Time. Sharp questions from Phil Davis and from uh, Douglas Kamikaze Carswell, Simon. Yes, they are certainly restless, all right. Um, they're very worried that uh, the uh, Liberal Democrats may be getting the upper hand in this coalition. They want to. Davis pure... said we, we don't elect people out of prison, we weren't elected to do that, and we can take, save money by taking away their Sky television. Well, of course, the government's not going to do that. They owe Rupert Murdoch for being in government in the first place. The notion that they're going to deprive Rupert Murdoch of the income, now he's taking over Sky completely, it looks as if he's going to do uh, 4,000 subscriptions, is absurd. Would it be more of a punishment, do you think, to take away the BBC? from them? Um, I think uh, most of them would much rather watch uh, Sky because of course it's got the football on. I mean, otherwise they, I suppose they could watch the culture show. They don't get the football as well, do they? That's extra. <laughs> Um, I uh, was fascinated as a sketch writer to see the arrival of a new uh, greaser, uh, someone uh, who uh, brings toadying to a new high level, the uh, Michael Fabricant, female Michael Fabricant could has arrived. Could this be Harriet? Harriet Baldwin. Thank you, Mr yeah. Speaker. And can I uh, praise the Prime Minister's staunch support of the NHS? And, and its budget, and 
use this opportunity to invite him to uh, Malvern to open our brand new community hospital sometime at his convenience this autumn. She praised the, the uh, Prime Minister's staunchness in cutting public spending. She invited him to attend the opening of a brand new hospital in her constituency, which uh, slightly surprised me because presumably the money for that was provided by the previous Labour government. We don't really talk about them. Well, uh, the Labour Party people started booing at that. The Speaker chipped in and said uh, uh, it was a part of a backbencher's job to back the government. It's the rules of the House for a government backbencher to support the government. It's not that or Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, we all remember you doing that very well. Um. <laughs> I think meant to be extremely sarcastic. Yes, I thought so too, Simon. Yes. Sir Burko, of course, was famous for being, uh, having gone from being on the far right to being uh, virtually a member of the Labour Party, or so his Tory colleagues thought. Uh, Cameron himself corpsed, as actors said. He couldn't stop laughing at his reply. Uh, I'm going to be watching Harriet Baldwin with great interest and pleasure in the coming months. Simon Hoggett's verdict there. Let's go back to Portcullis House, see what we can find. Now, the other thing which has um, exercised MPs greatly again today, uh, no surprise here, is uh, the new expenses rules uh, policed by the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, IPSA as it's known, thoroughly unpopular with MPs. Uh, IPSA's officials have been giving interviews, including one to The Guardian this week, saying they're all a bunch of curmudgeons and it's only the old and the stubborn who are um, giving them grief. Not that way at all, uh, MPs and all parties uh, tell me. Let's see if we can find people to explain. Uh, this is promising. Here comes uh, George Moody, uh, MP for Leeds East, uh, former minister again, former deputy chief whip, I think, former local politician. I think he led Leeds Council at one stage. He's a fearless fellow. I find it very frustrating to get on it. Well, it suits most people here now because they've all got degrees from Oxford, so they're OK. But a working class lad like me, Ipsa have started off, it seems to me, on this basis that an MP, even this new clean parliament, can't be trusted. And one of the difficulties with the old fees office was, as you know, uh, well, I went to the fees office and I got this advice and that's why I claimed it. This so is what the MP's defence against say, the Daily Telegraph. Yes, yes. If you've run a call centre and tried to sort something out and you, you get so frustrated, so angry, because you never get a human voice. And if you get a human voice, they're totally impersonal, they're totally, this is what it says on my instructions, and no, I can't pass you to a supervisor. A lot of people recognize that description. And, and that, that just seems to me a, a great part of the problem. Is this just a bedding down process? Some of the Ipsos staff have said it's the older members, the recalcitrant ones, uh, uh, but others tell me no, everybody's having this difficulty. We'll sort it out, but it's very frustrating. And so Lib Dem said to me yesterday, I'm £2,000 out of pocket so far. Yeah, I'm a great deal out of pocket too, because I've yet to complete my registration, so I've no claimed anything. So I'm meeting all my bills myself for the office and everything. So it's, it's deeply frustrating. Look, we are doing a job. We're just, we should be, and we're just seeking to claim expenses. And they're in expensive offices. They're refusing to speak. They're refusing to meet. They've devised this computer system that's almost impossible to get in. Uh, you can't get a human voice to give you a decision one way or another. And then, Michael, one of the, one of the strange things is, how would you like this? You put a 2,000 bill up, something in your office, maybe rent or something, you pay it and you pass it through and they say, no, we're not paying this. 
Now that's the situation we're in. You pay something and then you claim it. And then they tell you, no, we're not paying it. Everybody, I agree with this, everybody needs to settle down on both sides. Right, that's it from me. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow when we'll be discussing the Mansion House speech and other developments with Allegra Stratton and Julian Glover. Back now to John Dennis in the studio. Thanks, Mike. Now, tonight, South Africa play their second game of the 2010 World Cup against Uruguay. But amid the excitement of hosting the tournament, the South African people are marking Youth Day, a national holiday with great significance. With the details in Soweto, The Guardian's David Smith. Today I'm very happy just because it's our day, it's, our, it's your day. It shows that everybody has got the right to do whatever he likes to uh, in our country. No, no, no more apartheid, nothing. We are just living a pure life. We, we, we will not accept again the past to come again. I'm at the Hector Peterson Memorial in Soweto, south of Johannesburg. It's the 16th of June, a special day in South African history. Many people are gathered here to mark the 34th anniversary of the Soweto uprising, when students took to the streets to protest against the use of Afrikaans as the medium of instruction in schools. Police opened fire that day and hundreds were killed, including young Hector Peterson, after whom this memorial and museum are named. That day when he died, they were wearing school uniform, protesting for, for freedom and our rights. His fight for freedom has made a huge difference in our country. Along with the normal somber commemorations here in Soweto, there is the sound of vuvuzelas, there are people wearing yellow Bafana Bafana jerseys, and a somewhat upbeat mood and some reflection that it was events like the Sharpeville massacre, the Soweto uprising, Nelson Mandela's dedication that has really made the World Cup possible in this country and that 2010 marks another milestone in a journey that also included 1976. So let's try and find some people who remember the events of that day 34 years ago. My name is Zuelinzi Masizani. So I was more than involved, I was the national organizer of the high school student movement, SASN. And on that day, what was the general mood among the protesters? The mood was very, very tense. There was much anger and at the same time, we knew that there was going to be some response from the regime, but we never thought that they would use lethal force. At the moment, we were expecting tear gas, being rounded up, being arrested. But for them to use live bullets on kids, we, we never expected that, but uh, it didn't deter us. Did you see any protesters being shot and, and dying? Yeah. Police were using helicopters to snipe at looters. And a young chap of about 11 years was shot on the forehead and when I was just nearby him. We stopped the car, picked him up, but he was dead. How important was that day, the Sweat Uprising, in bringing about the end of apartheid eventually? It's important because people lost the fear for the regime. 
and uh, we knew as youngsters we couldn't liberate the country. We just had to get workers to begin to mobilize themselves, organize themselves. But the important link was the link with the ANC that provided leadership throughout those days, right up until 1994. There was no let up. I'm Freddy Sono. I'm from Middlelands, Soweto. Now, in 1976, I was six. I was born in 1970. I remember while I was in at school, TRKS. And then we were, to, we, were, we were forced to be taken out of school, going home, because the situation was volatile by then. Yes, South Africa now, we've got New South Africa. It's far different from the South Africa we had previously. We're, we, we, now, we, now we are living with white people, we are living with other races, we're living with Indians, colored. I think we are heading somewhere. Even the future generation are heading somewhere. There are many young people here today, many in school uniforms, and a great sense of excitement. They are remembering the past, but they're also very much looking forward to tonight and Bafana Bafana's next match. But not every young person here is complacent. And this is a country where an estimated three in four young people are unemployed. Many realise that there's still a long journey to go from the Soweto Uprising and that even the World Cup will not solve all their problems. If we're living in a space where relative deprivation is echoing in almost every township, you know what I'm saying? There's something definitely wrong with that. It's cool that we're dancing around and whatnot, whatnot, but after that month, that's what everybody's asking. After this month, what's next? Right now, of course, we're going to be in a gorgeous ambience and stuff, but after this month, we're still going back to square one. We're still going back to, like, no education, to unemployment, to a whole lot of stuff. David Smith reporting from Soweto. Tim Maybe and from Westminster, Phil Maynard were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. And my name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.